Thanks, David. Arcadia, you guys, I've been gone for a couple of weeks. Um, just uh, every, every summer for the last 18 years, uh, I've been invited to pastor a camp for a week in Iowa, northeast Iowa. And so Jackie and I go back there. Well, actually, Jackie and I and our daughters have gone back there uh, every year for the last 18 years to do that, and I got to go again this year. The only difference this year was that my two da- our two daughters actually uh, worked at the camp all summer, so they were already there when we got there, and then they worked uh, even this week that uh, I was pastoring, but it's great. Uh, we've built up a lot of relationships there. It's, it's just something that we do every summer, and we enjoy very much. I got to, um, I got to uh, preach to uh, people from uh, all over the upper Midwest, so Michigan, Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Illinois. A little different crowd than, than is here in Arcadia, but it's, it's fun. It's really good. But uh, as I do that, I just want you to know how much I appreciate the Shans, uh, Myers and Mortensen, for taking care of things the last two Sundays. I've listened to uh, both messages since I've been back. Both were absolutely outstanding. I, I, was, I really felt... Um, fed by those messages, really glad to be able to listen to them. Uh, of Sean Myers, the, the guy that, that was just up here, if you don't know who he is, he, uh, you know, in his, in his humble way, he just exudes humility. Uh, the first thing he said to me uh, when I got back Wednesday morning was that they were the best two Sundays that Arcadia's had all year, so um, that's that just, I'm glad to be back. So anyway, uh, and with Sean, so... Um, This morning we are closing out the first 11 chapters of Romans, the last four verses of Romans uh, chapter 11. And we've titled this message, The Majesty of God, and the big idea, just right out of the gate, you're going to hear this from me several times this morning, the big idea is that good theology will lead to joyous doxology, and we'll kind of explain what that means as we go through this. But they're the last four verses. There's this, uh, of the, what, what people call the first major divide of the book of Romans. There's two major divides, uh, 1 through 11 and then 12 uh, through 16. 1 through 11 is all the doctrine, and 12 through 16 is all the practical application, how we walk out our lives in light of all this doctrine on salvation and theology that Paul has given us in the first 11 uh, chapters. And it's interesting to me because um, what, what Sean Mortensen took us through last week, up through verse 32, um, it, usually at this point, the people in the pews and even the scholars who write the commentaries on Romans have the tendency to look at these next four verses and just say, oh, and then Paul goes into this doxology and boom, we can't wait to get to chapter 12 and all that good practical application of what our lives are supposed to look like as Christians. And, and they just sort of gloss over that. Now, having said that, I want you to know that Douglas Moo and James Montgomery Boyce don't do that. In fact, Montgomery Boyce um, uh, wrote 79 pages of commentary on these four verses. Those two guys, I think, have it figured out. Because to skip these four verses would mean that we are not going to take time, at least for one Sunday, to sit down and contemplate and reflect on the true, glorious, beautiful, sovereign majesty of God. I would suggest that these four verses are the New Testament's version of be still and know that I am God. And, and, and in a sense, it's Paul's way as he breaks out into this praise of God. It's, it's his way of saying we need to think about God. We need to spend time ruminating on God, pondering God. We need to exalt God. We need to pause and marvel at God. 
Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who many of you know, has been known as the Prince of Preachers. I, I seem to know him more as Sean Meyer's spiritual godfather. He used to argue repeatedly that thinking about and pondering God and reveling in God, as Paul does here, improves and expands your mind. He, he said that, that this spiritual discipline of ruminating on God and exalting God will actually expand your mind. And, and I guess you could say it's another way of saying it will help renew your mind. It will help renew your mind. Uh, A.W. Tozier puts it this way. What comes into our minds when we think about God in this way is the most important thing about us, that we are not God and we desperately need him. When we pause to exalt and revel and, and, and to praise God's majesty, part of that benefit to us is that we recognize who God is and that we're not him and that we desperately need him. So I want to read this passage again and then we'll just, we will dive into it. And we're just going to walk through this passage. That's it. We're just going to tear it apart. We're going to do some word studies and we're going to apply it to our lives. Paul writes, Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Let me just pause there and say that when we get to that sentence, that's my favorite sentence in this passage because of the imagery that Paul projects here. You don't see that in the English, but there's beautiful imagery there. And then he quotes, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him, to God, be glory forever. Amen. Now, this short passage, these four verses, they are a praise or a doxology. Uh, they are a prayer. You could call it a prayer. And, and what it does is it transitions the reader from all of this doctrine and theology about the salvation history that God is putting his people through. That would be uh, the Jews and the Gentiles and, and the problem of Israel and, and fixing all of that and helping people to understand that and what is salvation and what is God's election and what does his sovereignty look like and what does his mercy look like. The, the theology of all of that stuff, it's the transition from all of that into this practical application that we will start getting to in next week. And, and, and it's called a doxology because we get that, America, that American English word, that was really dumb. All right, it, the, that English word doxology from the Greek word doxa, which literally means glory. So it's to glorify God. What Paul is doing here is praising God, exalting God. It is glorifying God. And, and then if you were to study this passage academically, which we're kind of going to do today, uh, you would see that Paul lists all the reasons that God deserves all doxa, why he deserves all glory. And he starts with these words, depth and riches. And, and although that it's hard to tell from the English rendering of it, those two words, the depth and the riches, are really descriptive of the words knowledge and, and uh, ways. We, we, we need to understand that. Those are, those are adjectives describing those next two words which we're gonna define. He's, he's saying that God is so deep and his, he's so rich in his sovereignty. He is deep and rich in his mercy. He's deep and rich in his love. He's deep and rich in his 
election. He's deep and rich in his ways. He's deep and rich in his knowledge. He is deep and rich in his salvation. He is deep and rich in every possible way. And he's way deeper and way richer than you and I could ever understand or pursue or be. And that's what he's trying to say here. It's just like the words unsearchable and inscrutable describe his, his, his uh, judgments and his ways. So his knowledge and his wisdom is being defined by this idea that it's deep and it's rich. And so I'm going I'm to do knowledge first, even though Paul lists that second in, in our American minds. It's easier for us to handle knowledge first in terms of how it works. And so the definition of knowledge here would be the collection of information, facts, and evidence that any one person might be able to have. The collection of information, facts, and evidence that anybody might have. That's your knowledge. That's your bank of knowledge. So now the question would be, well, exactly how knowledgeable is God? How knowledgeable is God? Well, here's the answer. God has never had to learn anything. He's known it all from the very beginning. In fact, his, his knowledge is so perfect that he can't learn anything, though many of us try to teach him stuff all the time. We think we might have some insight. That's why Paul says what he does in verses 34 and 35, but he knows everything. We, we, would, we should, we wouldn't just say it. We should say it this way. God is never surprised, amazed, or confused. God is never surprised. He's never amazed. He's never confused. Even, for instance, I just think back to this because it's an iconic moment, 9-11. So many people were like, God had to have been surprised by that. Where was God when that happened? I'll tell you where he was. He was sitting on his throne, reigning in heaven. That's where he was. He knew all about that. God, God has never been surprised, amazed, or confused by anything. Again, A.W. Tozier writes this. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all minds and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures. Are you sensing a theme here? Every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth, in motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. Do you think Tozer covered it all? And by the way, if he didn't, God knows that too. He knows exactly what he missed and he knows all about it. God knows everything and as a result, we need to understand he also knows you and me that way. He knows you and me that way. That means that every heart and every desire is actually laid open and bare before God. God is literally the smartest being ever. He's perfect in his knowledge. And, and let me just suggest, if you're here today and, and you're new and maybe you're not even a believer and you're wondering about all this stuff and right out of the gate, we're just telling you how perfect God is. This perfect knowledge, if you're an unbeliever, should do two things to you. It should alarm you, but it should also encourage you. It should alarm you, but it should also encourage you. It, it should alarm you because he knows he knows. 
Just like everybody else in our world, including Christians, you're probably here with that image management thing going and you've got your spiritual Teflon on and you're trying to look like you've got it all together and everything's wonderful and everything's good and you're a really good person and God would be so glad and amazed to have you in his flock and all that stuff. Let me tell you something. God knows who you really are. He knows every thought, every desire, every sin. He knows your secrets. He knows exactly what you're hiding. And here's what's interesting about that. You you probably have a lot of people, we all fool a lot of people. We do. We're good at it. You may have all your friends fooled. You may have your family fooled. You may have people at your work fooled. You may have your customers fooled. You may have people in your neighborhood fooled. And here you go. You probably even have yourself fooled. You don't have God fooled. None of us has God fooled. He knows absolutely everything. And that can be a little bit alarming when you really start to think about it. But that also should encourage us, and here's why. In spite of what he knows, he still loves you desperately. And he's demonstrated that in the most tangible way he possibly can. He sent his only son to come here and live a perfect life, die a completely unjust death, and then be raised again. He he gave his only son so that you could be found perfect in him, so that you could stand righteous before God. Not because you're righteous, but because Jesus Christ is righteous and you now have his righteousness appropriated and imputed to you. That's how much he loves you. This should encourage you. If he knows that and he still loves me that much, that's got to be encouraging and it should encourage you to embrace Jesus Christ. Nobody, if they knew you exactly as you are, would embrace you the way God embraces you. And that should encourage you. He knows everything. And for the believer, if you already are a believer, the reason this should encourage you is because if his knowledge is that perfect, it it tells you and I that we can trust him completely. We can trust him completely. You heard... um, Jesse up here saying, we don't want to live in a spirit of fear. Those of us who are Christ followers who still live in a spirit of fear, what that means is that we're living in a spirit that does not trust God. His knowledge is perfect. I would encourage you to understand we can trust him completely. We can have complete faith in him. So that's his knowledge. And then wisdom is very simply the proper application of knowledge. So if God's knowledge is perfect, and it is, imagine how good he must be at applying that knowledge. That that means that everything he does, every move he makes, every purpose, every mission, every decision he makes is going to be absolutely perfect. And it's going to be good. It's going to be good. If it's good for God, ultimately it's going to be good for us, even though sometimes we have trouble arguing that. And I understand that and I get that because I'm one of the people that pushes back on that just like you are. But ultimately, if his wisdom is perfect for him, it's going to be good for us as well. J.I. Packer says this, proper wisdom in any case, but certainly with God, cannot be separated from goodness. Wisdom, in fact, is the practical side of moral goodness. And we're called not only to recognize that God has this perfect wisdom, but we're called also to pursue it ourselves. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter five, look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish. That word foolish in the Bible always stands in opposition to wise. 
So every time you hear foolish, it means in contradistinction to wisdom or wise. So do not be foolish, but rather understand what the will of the Lord is. Understanding the will of the Lord, pursuing the will of the Lord, knowing God, knowing his word, living by the power of the spirit, that is the pursuit of wisdom. And by the way, that's not to mention, if you want to know about the pursuit of wisdom, read the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs and read all about Lady Wisdom and how we should be pursuing it. And here's something I really want us to grasp here. Again, I'm going to remind us of this a couple of times. We need to understand that Paul is talking about the knowledge and wisdom of God here within the context of the gospel and salvation. We can't, we can't, lift these verses away from that context of the theology of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and how he saves us and, and this idea that, uh, of salvation history, God's plan of salvation history. This is the context here. God, God is wise and knowledgeable in his theology and salvation. Paul says repeatedly through his writings and particularly in the book of Romans we've already seen that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And there's knowledge and wisdom there. Good theology will lead to joyous doxology. And then the second half of verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. It's, it's interesting. Every person I read, it seems, cites Isaiah 55 here. It's, it's Paul's way, I think, of, of paraphrasing Isaiah 55, which says this. This is God speaking to Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And Isaiah, by the way, is supposed to tell this to the nation of Israel. So it's not just Isaiah that, that God is saying this to. He's saying it to everybody. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so we start with this word judgments. Uh, the word judgment in, in the Greek is krimata, and, and there's two ways that this word is used in Scripture. The first way is the more obvious way and the way that we, we probably think of it more often, and that is to judge sin for what it is. And certainly it's used that way many times in Scripture. But there's a second way that this word is used. It can also mean a decree. And a decree is a statement of fact, decision, or intention made by God about God or about us. A decree is a statement of fact, decision, or intention made by God about God or about us. And that's most likely what it means here. So, so Paul's talking about God's statements of fact. And he says that these decrees, these facts about God are unsearchable. We gotta unpack that a little bit. Well, if they're unsearchable, why are we bothering? Here's, here's, here's what he means. It is impossible for us as finite fallen beings to know God's decrees, his facts, with absolute perfection this side of heaven. Because sin has corrupted us and because we have limits as to how far we can go and what our knowledge is gonna be, we're never gonna have the perfect understanding of his decrees and his judgments this side of heaven. Have you ever heard anybody say this? I'm gonna get to the bottom of this. Something happens at work, something bad happens at work, something bad happens in the family. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna call somebody and I'm gonna get to the bottom of this. And maybe they do, maybe they're able to. Maybe they're able to unearth all the facts and put together the whole story perfectly. Maybe they're able to do that. We can never do that completely and perfectly with God's decrees. 
The word that we translate as unsearchable literally means bottomless. There is no bottom. You can dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and you will never find the bottom. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't bother pursuing God's decrees and decisions and judgments. We should. We should pursue knowing them and studying them and trying to understand them as the Spirit guides us and as, as, the, as the Word of God illuminates our minds and, and as we're in our, our redemption communities together and we're, we're grinding on each other. We should be searching. But we need to understand that they're so perfect that we're never going to understand them in that absolute perfection this side of heaven. And, and so here, here might be a couple of examples of what I mean by that. Um, we have the tendency to, uh, to have a disordered understanding of why God does these things, for instance. So here, here's some examples. Um, we, have the, uh, we have the tendency to look at God's decrees and decide that they're really more about our good than his glory, and that's not what Scripture would teach us. Now, his decrees certainly are good for us. I just got done saying that what God does his wisdom, his knowledge, all of that, if it's good for him, it's gonna be good for us, but primarily, it's for his glory. So you might ask uh, this question, why did God create the heavens and the earth? And, and we often answer something like this. Well, it's so that we human beings would have a wonder pla wonderful place to, in which to live and to work and to steward. And all of that is true, yes, amen. But scripture also says the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hand. It's first and foremost primarily about his glory. Even Paul tells us that in Romans 1. He says, look at creation. It reveals the glory of God. It reveals who God is. You can't miss the fact that God is God if you just look at his creation. It is first and foremost about his glory. We benefit from it, yes, but first and foremost sin. Here's another question. Why did Jesus come into the world? And we would say to save us from our sins and that is true and that is good and that is wonderful. Yet Jesus also says, I have brought the Father glory by completing the work that he gave me to do. Jesus comes to save us from our sins but ultimately it's to bring God the Father glory. So sometimes what happens here is we need to be reminded that our view of God is not quite high enough and our view of our, ourselves needs to be low enough that we can submit ourselves to God and his glory. In, in other words, we need perspective and we need a reordered understanding of reality. Paul is constantly coming to us with this challenge. He, he tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. You need to look at the world the way Jesus looks at the world through his lens, not through yours. Uh, scripture is constantly calling us to adjust our thinking to the, to the way God sees the world rather than the way we see the world. And then his ways, his ways are inscrutable. I wanna first talk about that word inscrutable. Uh, that Greek word literally means an endless path. And this is why I like this sentence, okay? This is why I like it. So he, he, he's already talked about how his decrees are, are so deep that you can never get to the bottom of them. Now he says his ways are so far and wide that you can never get to the end of them. So, so he's got this imagery going on. If you were in the first century Mediterranean world reading this letter in the original Greek, you would see this beautiful imagery that Paul is painting for us. God is so deep and so high and so far and so wide that we'll never be able to fully experience his perfection and glory and sovereignty this side of heaven, but we should continue to pursue it. 
And his ways are very simply God's methods and actions, what he does. God's way of shaping history by his sovereignty and his mercy and his love and his, his decrees. And, and again, we must pursue understanding these ways, these methods, these actions, but we have to realize we'll never really understand it perfectly. Uh, he's holy and perfect and sovereign and really in many respects we're just kind of along for the ride. And really what Paul is doing here, I believe, is he's trying to give us comfort in the midst of what we must know is our imperfect knowledge. He's trying to give us some measure of comfort in the midst of what we know is imperfect knowledge. And that's what we have. We, we look through the glass darkly. Our vision is obscured. It's It's smoky. It's, it's obstructed. God has the meta-narrative and we simply have what's in front of us. We're kind of in the weeds while God sees everything. And as a result, that's going to take faith. This is even a passage about faith. It's a, it's a, it's a passage about trusting God. Uh, many of you know who Elizabeth Elliot was. Some of you know her story and, and, and what she went through and the story of her husband, Jim, one of her husbands. She was a missionary with many, many setbacks. Um, when she first got into missions work, she found an interpreter to, to go into the field with her and that first interpreter that went with her the first time they went into the field, he was murdered by the very people that they were trying to minister to. Now, you're, you're, the first time you go out in missions and your interpreter's murdered, that might discourage most of us, but no, she's gonna keep going. So, she ends up meeting Jim. Many of you know Jim Elliott. Some of you have read his journals that he's written. Okay. After 27 months of marriage to Jim, just 27 months, Jim was killed by the very people that they were trying to minister to. So she lost husband number one. Then she married again, only to watch that husband, and these are her words, not mine, only to watch that husband disintegrate and die of cancer. Tom Schrader, who is the founding pastor of the Gilbert Congregation at, at, uh, um, at Redemption, he says this all the time, and I think of this here. Most of us need to meet people with actual problems. You need to meet Elizabeth Elliot and get to know her. Here's what Elliot wrote about God's ways and her challenging life. Can you say this as well? The experiences of my life are not such that one would conclude that God is good, gracious, and merciful. To have one husband murdered and to watch another one disintegrate, body, soul, and spirit through cancer, is not what you would call proof of the love of God. In fact, there are many times when it looks like just the opposite. But my belief in the love of God is not by inference or instinct, it is by faith. To apprehend God's sovereignty working in that love is, we must say it, the last and highest victory of faith that overcomes the world. This takes faith. Takes trust. How many of you right now, this is a rhetorical question, how many of you right now, you desperately want to know what God's end game is for you? You want to know what is and how's this going to turn out? How's my life going to turn out? How's what's my how's my family going to turn out? Who am I going to be in relationship with? Who am I not going to be in relationship? What's work going to be like? What's my education going to do? All we want to know. We want to know. 
but we walk by faith, not by sight. <laughs> God, we just got done a few weeks ago with that five-week series on God's faithfulness looking at the, at the Old Testament, and we started with Abram in, in Genesis chapter 12. And God goes to Abram right in the very beginning, and Abram's just standing there minding his own business in Ur, and God goes to him, and he says, Abram, I'm calling you. And, and here's, this is not what he said. He didn't say, Abram, I am calling you to 24th Street and Camelback. There's a nice mall there, some good restaurants, good condominiums, really nice place to work, lots of air conditioning. You're gonna love it there. He doesn't say that. He says, Abram, I am calling you to a land that I will show you. How many of us, if we passed around that clipboard right now, you'd be going, oh yeah. No, we want pro formas. We want a prospectus. We want guarantees. We want promises. We want to know how all of this is going to end. We don't want, well, we'll see how it turns out. That's not what we desire. It takes faith. Abraham went. Israel had a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide them, and they still wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. That was God making them wander. That takes faith. And I know, they grumbled in the midst of it. I grumble in the midst of my faith too, and you do too. We all do. But it takes faith because it's hard, I know. Moses had to herd sheep for 40 years before God revealed just a little bit of his plan to him. And then here's the funny thing. God reveals a little bit of his plan to Moses, and what did Moses do? Uh, I'm probably not your guy. <laughs> Finally, Moses went. One more. How about Paul, the guy writing this letter? So here you go. Paul's story is Acts 9. He's on the road to Damascus. He's on his way there to herd up, round up some, some, some Christians so he can throw them in jail and maybe execute some of them. Jesus comes along and knocks him off of his mode of transportation, throws him down to the ground, blinds him, and speaks to him personally. You would think a guy who's called by Jesus in that manner would receive a break that he'd have some ease and comfort and understanding and that he would know the end game, not Paul. Have you heard his testimony? Here's Paul's testimony. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. I was in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all of those things, there's the daily pressure on me of the anxiety that I have for all of the churches. That was Paul's life, and that took faith. Like Schrader says, most of us need to meet people with actual problems. God's ways are the ways that we must, by faith, embrace. And rather than captaining the ship, which I know all of us would prefer, we're along for the ride. G Gerald May says it this way. He says, it is when we know where we are going and what the outcome will be that we are most likely to stumble. It's when we know where we're going and what the outcome will be that we'll most likely screw this up. So, so you have wisdom and knowledge and decrees and ways, but Paul's not done yet. Verses 34 and 35 remind us that no one has the right to judge God. 
No one has the right to stand in judgment of God. He's already said this once in Romans chapter 9, verse 20, when he says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You have no right to stand in judgment of God. And he starts this section with verse 34. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who's smart enough to give, give God wise counsel? There's no one more clever than God. There's, there's no one who has additional information with which God could do a better job of being God. But we keep trying. God, look! You see this? Come on, man. Get on board. In the quiet of our hearts, at least in the quiet of our hearts, if not in the loud arrogance of our proclamations and actions, we continue to think that we can counsel God. Well, I'll tell you, if God would just take my plan A on this, <laughs> it would work really well. We struggle with this idea of how small we are compared to God. There's a, there's a classic passage in Scripture that I think gets us close. This is something that we should read out loud and to ourselves all the time just to remind us. This is Isaiah's experience with God. And put yourself in the shoes of Isaiah here. In that year, this is Isaiah chapter six. In that year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am, I am undone. For I am a man of clean li unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I have a paraphrase for this too. Isaiah looks at God and he says, oh crap. You and I need to say that a little more often. We need to stop, understand who God is and go, oh crap. I'm not so great as I thought I was. This is not to diminish how valuable you are, but it's to exalt God, to help us to understand. William Beebe, uh, he's a, a biologist and he was a friend of Teddy Roosevelt who was the president more than 100 years ago. Uh, he describes a ritual that he and Teddy Roosevelt would go through. They were good friends. They went through this ritual quite regularly and it was a ritual designed to restore a sense of wonder in both of them. And Bibi writes this. After an evening of talk, we would go out on the lawn and search the heavens until we found the faint spot of the light mist in the constellation Pegasus. And I would recite, that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It is, it is a, a one of a hundred million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away and it consists of 100 billion suns, each sun larger than our own. And after a moment, Roosevelt would grin at me and say, now I think we are small enough. Let's retire. We're small compared to God. We're pretty big in our own eyes, but we're small compared to God. And, and, 
And again, we love to use this word around here at Redemption, tension. And I know this creates tension because right now some of you must be and actually I would say should be asking this question. Then are we of no consequence at all? Are we of no significance at all? Is there no point to us? Are we purposeless? Are we inconsequential? And the answer is yes. In the areas that you desperately want consequence, in the areas that I desperately want significance, which would be control and power. We are inconsequential and insignificant there. Apart from God, we can do what? Nothing. But we are of infinite significance and consequence when it comes to how God values us. I've already told you, he gave his only son. He gave everything he had so that you and I could be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ and have eternal life in him and be inherited by God as the children of God and to eventually be glorified and to share that inheritance with his son. That's how significant we are. The problem is, is that we, we need a reordered understanding of who God is so that we can reorder our understanding of who we are and we can be in right relationship with God as a result. That's the key to this whole thing. And then he says, or who has given something to God that he might be repaid. In other words, no one has anything that God needs or that would put God in their debt. God owes no one. And so this, this verse, I would suggest, is for all of us who, who think that we can bargain with God, that we can kind of make a deal with God, that we can finagle God with some sort of cosmic barter that we think we have. And that would be all of us, every one of us. God, God, I'll make you a deal. Don't. You start a sentence like that with God, it's eventually gonna go bad. I just, I guarantee you. <laughs> This is me. You know, God owes me. Look at all I have done. That is ridiculous. God, I'll tell you what. Oh, please don't start a, don't, don't start a conversation with him that way either. Uh, I, I was kind of feeling like the circumstances of my life were aligning in such a way that that I was being called out of the marketplace and into pastoral ministry, which meant I was going to go to work at a church and and do what I'm doing now. And, and I was resisting that call. And finally, finally, I literally went to God and I prayed this prayer. I said, God, I will become a pastor just as long as I don't have to do prison ministry. I spend a lot of time in the prisons now. It's one of the most passionate things in my life is prison ministry. I have a very good friend who's almost 20 years younger than me. Uh, I was uh, the officiant at his wedding with his wife, Chantel. His, his life mirrors mine in so many different ways. His, uh, his wife, when he first met Chantel, was a believer, and he was not, just like Jackie and me. And, and the progression of his story with Chantel was exactly like mine with Jackie's. And so we just connected. And this morning, he was in the first service. And as he walked out, he walked up to me and he said, I'm a little nervous now. And I said, why? And he said, because I told God when I became a Christian that I would become a Christian as long as I don't ever have to be a pastor. I said, welcome to the ministry, my brother. <laughs> we gotta be really careful. The paraphrase of 1135 would be this. God cannot be manipulated, beguiled, or cornered but we try. 
We do. Admit it. I admit it. And then the culmination of this magnificent doxology is in verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things to God, to him be glory forever. Good theology will lead us, will in fact lead us to joyous doxology. And I will tell you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I I know that verse 36 probably makes very little sense to you, if any. But if you're here and you're a Christian, this verse is your worldview. You look at that and you go, yep, that's right. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this verse might even be confusing at the very least to you. Or, or, or at worst, it might sound insane. What are you talking about? I thought all things were for me and through me and for me and by me. But if you're a Christian, this verse is the definition, the definition of clarity and sanity. In, in other words, this verse hits you and you realize your mind has been renewed, which is interesting because in just two short verses, we're gonna get to Romans 12 too, which says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That Greek word transformed is metamorpheo. You and I experience a metamorphosis when we come to Christ and the Holy Spirit invades our life and he literally changes the way we think. I've got kind of the A.W. Tozer hat trick today. This is the third time I'm quoting him. He says this, in the moment we make up our minds that we will exalt God over all, we step out of the world's parade. I love that phrase, we step out of the world's parade. Let me explain to you what this does not mean though. It doesn't mean that we step out of the world. We are to be God's light in this world. We are to be salt in this world. It's not that we step out of the world, but we step out of the world's parade. We step out of the way the world thinks about things and the world's systems. We, we step out of all the different worldviews that we could, we could have if we entered the world without a redeemed mind and a converted heart. So we step out of the parade in that way, but we still step into the world to proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought us out of darkness and into his magnificent light. We still are in the world, but we step out of the parade of the world's ways. And we do this because we we acquire a new viewpoint. A a new and different psychology will be formed within us and a new power will begin to surprise us by its upsurgings and its outgoings. And again, I want to be reminded of of the context. Paul has been talking about the gospel for 11 chapters. He's been talking about salvation. So he talks about the perfection and sovereignty of the creator here because he is the one who saves. And it's the gospel who brings, that brings uh, glory to God. Spurgeon writes this about verse 36. To him be glory forever. This is the single desire of the Christian. The Christian may desire that his family be well brought up, but only so that to God be glory forever. The Christian may wish for prosperity in his business, but only so far as it may help him to promote this, to God be glory forever. The Christian may desire to attain more gifts and more graces, but it should only be that to him be glory forever. At my work behind the counter or in the exchange, let me be looking out to see how I may glorify him. If I am walking in the fields, let my desire be that the trees may clap their hands in his praise. At night, fall asleep, still praising your God. 
And as you close your eyes, let your last thought be how sweet it is to rest upon the Savior. In afflictions, praise him. Out of the fires, praise him. Out of, out of mystery, let your song go up. In the sickbed, extol him dying. Let him have your sweetest notes. Be this then our constant thought. To God be glory forever. Amen. Usually I pray at this point. I have a closing prayer and we transition into our time of, of reflection and response and communion and Josh is gonna come out in a second to do that. But the way I wanna close today instead, I just think it's, it would be appropriate if we would stand together and recite together Psalm 150. I think that would be appropriate now and you'll see it up on the, on the screens. And I'm gonna start and when you feel my cadence and rhythm, just join in please. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen.